0: And if you would open up your Bibles, please, to Matthew 19, we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 22. Actually, I want you to position yourself, if you would, in two places primarily. I don't know if I actually get over into Luke 18, but if you would get also a marker in Mark 10, we will be flipping to Mark as well. Um, What we're going to look at this morning is found in Matthew, Mark and Luke. So we get additional information from each of those gospel writers. Let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our time together this morning. Father, we thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We um, thank you, Lord, that it is eternal. We thank you for the gospel message. God offers sinful people eternal life. And Father, we do thank you so much for that and that you have made that possible through the one who is life? The Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for grace, and thank you, Lord, for for goodness that Christ is intrinsic goodness, as we will look at this morning. Thank you for for His glory, for His grace, His goodness, and His glory. Thank you, Father, that in um, childlikeness we can we can approach You. throne of grace and ask that you would anoint your servant and that you would use your word lord to edify the saints this morning i pray that everything that would be said here today would bring honor and glory to the only one who deserves it you father and your son the lord jesus christ in whose name we pray well today's account of the lord's encounter with a rich young ruler presents for us what I think is perhaps one of the very saddest accounts in the story, the, uh, the life of Christ, because this young man was probably the only person we find who ever came to the feet of the Lord Jesus and left in worse shape than when he arrived. And that is why I have entitled this lesson, The Poor Rich Man. Yes, he was rich. He had great wealth, we are told, great possessions. So he was a rich man physically, but he was very, very poor spiritually. And after he left Jesus, he was still very poor spiritually. Now, um, we're going to look primarily today at the account of the poor rich man and his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ from Matthew's gospel. And I have a three-point outline. We're going to look at a serious request, the Savior's response, and then the sad result. But as I go along, I will be asking you to flip over into Mark 10 from time to time. So if you'll have your finger or a marker there, we'll uh, include that. And I'll also tell you a few more things that Luke tells to us about this story. So let's begin by looking at Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. It says, and behold, one and over in Luke, you don't have to turn there, but Luke tells us this one was a certain ruler. So one who was a certain ruler came and said unto him, which of course is the Lord Jesus Christ, good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? That is the serious request. All right. And now we look at the Savior's response. And he, Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And he saith unto him, which? Which commandment? Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, all these things have I kept from my youth up. Can you imagine? saying that loved his neighbor as himself from his youth up that's a pretty incredible statement but he says all these things have I kept from my youth up what lack I yet and the word lack is a very interesting Greek word because it's exactly the same word we find in Romans three twenty three, where it says um, that we all come short of the glory of God for all of sin and come short same word lack we all lack, we all come short. He says, what lack I yet? How do I come short yet? All right, and Jesus saith unto him, verse 21, if thou will be perfect, you know, you say you're perfect. <laughs> if you're going to be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come now over in Mark ten twenty-one, it adds not only come, but Mark tells us that he said, take up the cross, and follow me. So, if you put all three synoptic gospel to, together, all three of them together, you have come. Take up the cross and follow me. That's the savior's response. Here's the sad result, verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful. Luke adds the word very sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And in the Greek word, that tells us he had land. Uh, animal herds uh, great wealth he was a very rich man all right the Lord's approach to this young man has often been very perplexing to people and some have even tried to use it to quote unquote prove that Jesus really was not God now as you do read through it just superficially you can understand that It it does have some perplexities. It is a rather puzzling encounter until we dig under the surface, get into the passage to understand just exactly what was happening and uh, why Jesus was saying what he said. And as we do so, hopefully those dilemmas will fade away. The perplexities will disappear. But on the surface, we can sort of empathize uh, with the confusion that the Lord's conversation with this rich man has caused many people. Now, and the, and the perplexities really center on, the Lord, on three of the Lord's responses to this young man. Number one, the young man, in addressing the Lord Jesus, called him, what? Good master. And in the Lord's response to him, he seems to deny, seems to deny, at least to, to some who have this view, He seems to deny that he is good because he answers the young ruler's question with a question of his own, which is so typical of the Lord Jesus Christ. But his question is, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. So those who deny the deity of the Lord Jesus love this verse. This is one of their favorite verses because they point to it and in effect they say here it is in Jesus's own words. Why do you call me good when nobody is good but God? Ha, you know, we've got all you Jesus, all you people who say Jesus is God. We've got you because here he is in his own words denying his divinity. So you see, for you and I, who do believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, this is a very important encounter for us to understand, is it not? We really need to understand what he was saying and what he was doing here, because if Jesus is not also God, that means he was born, you know, he was just a man. So he was born with the same Adamic sin nature that we were all born with. And this means that the shedding of his blood to atone for our sins would mean absolutely nothing and therefore we might as well hang it up and we might as well live it up because we're all doomed to death and destruction so hang it up and live it up (laughs) if jesus is not who he claimed to be the son of god equal with god All right. The second perplexity comes in the fact that in answering the young man's question, how he might receive eternal life, Jesus talked about keeping the commandments. You see that in the latter half of verse 17. And then he specifically mentioned six commandments. And so we go, what? Did you kind of wonder about that when we read through it? What in the world? And that sounds like Jesus is teaching that salvation is a matter of works. You know, keep the commandments salvation by works So you can understand the perplexities of people Third perplexity is a real shocker Because the final piece of advice Which is really a command that the Lord gave to this rich young ruler Was for him to sell all that he had Talk about redistribution, socialism uh, Sell all that he had and give it to the poor If he was going to be what? Perfect. Look at verse 21. If you're going to be perfect, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. And from these words, again, the question immediately arises. Does Jesus demand that a person give up everything he has in order to be saved? So is he again here teaching salvation by works? So can you identify with why people have a problem with this encounter? All right. So what we need to do is we need to look at it. You are going to have to put on some thinking caps today. Because it gets pretty deep, but we're going to look at, see if we can resolve these seeming difficulties and discover just what it was that the Lord was doing or attempting to do with this young man. Now, as we come to discover this one who ran to Jesus to kneel before him. And by the way, you didn't know that, did you? Okay, let's go to Mark. You didn't know he ran to him Go over to Mark. I forgot to telling you all to put your finger in Mark and I forgot to do that. Mark 10. Uh, verse 17 mark 10:17. it says and when he this is speaking of Jesus when Jesus was gone forth into the way alright remember we don't know exactly where he was last time we knew specifically where he was Jesus was up there somewhere on the border of Galilee and Samaria and now he is, has joined with a group of Passover pilgrims from Galilee and he's on his way it says the way what way the way to the cross he's on his way to the cross so as he's on his way there came and we don't know exactly where this was but there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him good master what shall i do that i may have et- uh, that i may inherit eternal life alright so this one who ran to jesus to kneel before him with his all-important question was a young man we found that over in matthew nineteen twenty and we also find out that he was very wealthy and it's interesting because all three of the synoptic gospel writers Matthew Mark and Luke tell us that this man was wealthy now only one told us he was young and only one told us that he was a ruler but all three of them told us he was very wealthy why do you think that is because his wealth was his big stumbling block that was his that was his big problem now um And then Luke tells us that he was a certain ruler. I won't have you go over to Luke, but it's in Luke 18, 18. He was a certain ruler. Now, perhaps that means he was a ruler in a local synagogue. We don't know. Maybe he was a magistrate or a judge of some type, or maybe uh, he was even a junior member of the Sanhedrin. We don't know for sure what type of ruler he was, but we do know that he was in a very honored position for his young age. Everything about this fellow tells us that he certainly should have been happy. You know, according to the world's standards, he had it all. He was young, he was rich, he had social prominence, he was also religious, he was honest... he's a good guy he's very honest he's honest with himself he's honest with Jesus he's moral he's sincere he's very well respected and he probably is highly educated he would have come from a good family because he says from his youth up he kept the commandments so you know his parents taught him the the laws and everything what could he possibly be lacking um, to have happiness and fulfillment in his life because looks like he has everything he's got it all But he himself obviously knew that there was something more because he apparently obviously felt that God shaped vacuum in his soul. And he was honest enough with himself to admit publicly that he lacked having assurance of eternal life, which is really why we see the word behold are you back in Matthew go back to Matthew 19 look at verse 16 it says and behold you know every time you see the word behold it means like look at this or listen and so we're we're told behold this is a look at this this is a big wow it would have been very unusual and a very unexpected sight to find such a prominent young man of nobility and perhaps even a religious leader Running to Jesus. Now, two things about that. Number one, do you remember when we taught the parable of the prodigal son and we saw the father running out to meet the son when he was returning from the pigsty? And we talked about how that just wasn't done back in those days by a, a man of dignity, a man of dignity and Especially a ruler and a prominent man. And the prodigal's father was very wealthy. They didn't run in public. They walked, you know. But uh, the father didn't care. He ran. And here we see this young man running. That's that's unusual. That's a wow. That's a behold. But who is he running to? Jesus. And this is at the point in time where Jesus is like only a couple weeks from the cross. He's not very popular with the religious crowd. I mean, they're out to get him. And then he fell down before him on his knees. And then notice he didn't just call him master, which is the in the Greek. It's the word teacher. He didn't just call him teacher, but good teacher, good master. And what did he ask him? How he might have eternal life. Now, remember, the Lord is with a big crowd of people. He's not only just with his disciples at this time. He's with a large multitude of of Passover pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. And so this was a very amazing sight for all of them. And I, you know, I thought about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was another very prominent religious ruler. But how did he approach the Lord Jesus? when he won you know he was sincere but he did it under the cover of darkness here this young man he's running out in broad daylight before a multitude of people so what this tells us is that he did not have a problem of worrying about his reputation before other people he wasn't all about pleasing you know pleasing men in order to receive their praise he wasn't haughty He did not have a problem with arrogance. He was a respectful young man. He sincerely wanted to know um, before this good master departed from his area, don't know where they were, but running to him before he left, he wanted to know how he could find satisfaction for the overwhelming need that he felt in his life, that emptiness of his soul that told him there was something more that he was missing. What lack I yet to know that I may have eternal life? He knew he didn't have eternal life. He wanted to have it. If you remember, there'd been another man earlier in our Life of Christ study, back in Luke chapter 10, who had uh, approached Jesus with the same question. And that man had been a lawyer. His question, he didn't include the word good, but he said, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But the law, if you compare the two, the lawyer with this rich young ruler, there's a big comparison because the lawyer's motive, motive in asking that question was completely um, the opposite. His motive was evil we are actually told that he asked the question in order to tempt jesus to ensnare jesus and one thing we can see right away remember how we um, i wasn't here (laughs) bodily but when you heard the message last week uh... i compared the postures the position of the two men the pharisee and the publican in the temple it's interesting just to notice their postures were different Well, we see that here with the lawyer and the rich young ruler because When the lawyer approached Jesus with a question about how to have eternal life, Jesus was sitting because the teachers always would sit. And we are told that the lawyer stood up and asked Jesus his question. So what he was doing positionally was putting himself in a superior position over Jesus. He really was asking his question because he thought that he was smarter than jesus and he was superior to jesus when it came to knowledge of the law or the word can you imagine that anyone thinking they could be superior to the one who wrote the law but so he put himself in a position above jesus whereas this rich young ruler what does he do he falls on his knees so he puts himself positionally below jesus and then uh Uh, comparing them, we found out that the lawyer was not at all really genuinely interested in what Jesus had to tell him about how to receive eternal life. He just proudly assumed, like that Pharisee in the temple last week, that he would probably be one of the first ones that God would invite into the kingdom because of his great wisdom as far as the law is concerned. He showed absolutely no humility. He showed no respect. He showed no sorrowfulness during his entire encounter With the Lord Jesus And he's the one that the Lord You know he said Well who is my neighbor And that he's the one that the Lord You know then spoke the parable Of the Good Samaritan to Whereas here in contrast The rich young ruler Showed all three of these things He showed humility He shows respect And he does show sorrowfulness To go to Jesus publicly At this time in the Lord's life You know when obviously The religious establishment Is so hostile toward him tells us that this young man didn't care if he was ostracized even by his own peers for going to Jesus you know so that's why this is a behold wow this is an unusual man especially if you put him in the context of when and where he asked it and and everything else and so you would think you would think that this young fellow was about to become Maybe the Lord's 13th disciple or something Uh, that he, he might even earn a place in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the hall of faith chapter. He was a young man that probably any one of us would be proud to have as a son or as a grandson. So we find that this, and that's what makes this story all the more sad. Is that the right way to say (laughs) that's what makes it more tragic is that he comes so close and yet he's so far away. So we find that he came in the right spirit. He really did. He had the right motive, the right attitude, and he came with the right question because asking to know how to have eternal life is the most important question of all existence, isn't it? Absolutely. He was seeking, and this is rare enough for people in general to be seeking but particularly for the, the young, because you got most young people, you know, they're so busy being young <laughs> that they think, well, I'll wait, you know, I want to live it up right now, so I'll wait for, you know, with eternal life when I get maybe older. And so this young man, you know, he's young. And so he came at the right time in his life because he would have the whole rest of his life to serve the Lord. And, and so he came in the right spirit. He came with the right question. He came at the right t- time. And remember, too, that according to the theology of his day, since he was rich, it meant that God, you know, the Pharisaic theology, what it taught, that it meant that God was already pleased with him. And God demonstrated that because of, show, you know, having the man be wealthy. So this this is unusual, too, because his theology would have taught him that he was already blessed by God. God was already pleased with him. And then being such a meticulous keeper of the law, as he obviously tried to be, at least externally, he didn't understand the, the depth of the law when it came to attitudes and, and motives and everything, but externally he tried to be obedient to the law. So it, this, it was rare for such a one to question his own religion. Now, of course, he still thought that he had to do something. Isn't that his question? He says, uh, what, what good thing shall I do? So he's still thinking that he needs to do something. So his mind is still set on a works system. But he does at least have some sense that the system of his religion, which he had been observing his whole life, had, had failed him. So far, it had failed him because he still felt he was lacking something. Unfortunately, it was because he thought that there was some good thing he could yet do that would give him the inner satisfaction that he was longing for. And we'll get back to that subject in a minute. But I also want to mention first that uh, we not only find this young man coming in the right spirit, at least as far as motive and attitude are concerned, and coming with the right question, but he also sought for his much-desired information about eternal life from the right source, because who did he go to? Did he go to the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes or lawyers or somebody like that? No. He went to the right source. He went to the one who is not only the source of eternal life, but is himself eternal life. What does it say in 1 John 5.20? It says that Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. Christ himself is eternal life. Now, while we are on the subject of the young man's question about eternal life, I want to point out to you a slight but very meaningful difference in the words that are used in this passage. Notice in verse 16, in the young man's question, he asked about eternal life. He said, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? Whereas in the Lord's response to the young man, he said, if thou will enter into life, keep the commandments. You see, the young man wanted to know what he could do to live forever. So he's really thinking in terms of quantity of life, length of life. He wanted assurance that he would inherit the kingdom of God and therefore live forever. But Jesus was telling him that he had not even yet started to live he was speaking of a quality of life he was making a distinction between true life spiritual life and mere existence physical life he was talking to a physically living individual wasn't he Jesus was speaking to a man who was physically living obviously or he couldn't have run to him and he couldn't have fallen down down on his knees before him uh, and so he was t- talking to a physically living person when he spoke to him about entering life so Jesus was making the point that to receive eternal life is to enter life and that is exactly what the scripture repeatedly claims that a man without God a man without Christ does not have what? life he doesn't have life he's living But he's really just existing. He's in a state of spiritual death because he's separated from God, who is the source of real life. When a person receives Christ, who is not only the way, the truth, but also the life, not just life, but he is the life, then... That person becomes alive to God Because the essence of eternal life Is having the life of God's Son within you You can't have eternal life Without having the eternal one Inside of you And you have he quickened Which means made alive Who were dead In trespasses and sins Eternal life you see is more than just a quantity of existence it's more than just everlasting existence those who are who will spend eternity in hell will have everlasting existence but eternal life is a quality of existence it is the divinely given ability to be alive to God and all of the marvelous truths about God eternal life involves a person's now listen to this eternal life involves a person's ability to respond to and interact with that which is eternal and that which is eternal is the triune god and the realm in which he lives heaven now just hypothetically think of this if we could enter into heaven without possessing eternal life we can't But if we could, then we would be like a rock in this world, all right? Uh, A rock in this world. A rock is an inanimate object. It does not have physical life. This world is a physical realm, right? So people can interact in this world and respond to this world we're alive because we have physical life, so we can interact in this physical world. But a rock cannot. A rock does not have physical life, so it can't interact with this world. It just sits there. <laughs> just sits there. <laughs> All right, so if we could get into heaven without having eternal life, we would be in heaven like a rock, just sitting there, We would not have eternal life, so we could not interact with and respond to that which is eternal. We couldn't interact with with God and with his heavenly realm. Do you get me? Do you follow that? Okay, that's good. I got more of these today than I did yesterday. All right. Now we can be sure that this rich young man didn't understand all of this, but he he just wanted to have the hope and the assurance of knowing that he would live forever because he had met God's requirements to enter into his eternal kingdom. He knew that he was still missing out on some fuller spiritual dimension to his life, which he obviously saw in Jesus. And we're going to talk a minute in a minute about how he didn't really believe Jesus was God, but he saw something in this good master teacher. Maybe he had heard him teach somewhere else, or he surely at this time had, had heard about all his, his miracles and everything. So he wanted, it's almost kind of like a person going to a guru. You know, he wanted to find out what Jesus had done to get this richer, fuller spiritual dimension to his life so that he could have it in his own life. And what is so shocking to us is that Jesus did not immediately tell this young man how to get saved, like we would say. You know, he didn't he didn't tell the young man, believe on me and thou shall be saved. Now, his approach to this young man differs very much with our modern day evangelistic methods. There were there are many Christians, including myself who, if such a prominent young man had come up to me and said, what, what, how can I have eternal life? I would have been so happy. I, how many times did somebody just walk up to you and ask you how to have eternal life? I'd have been jumping up and down in my boots. I mean, I, that would have been so excited, And I would have, you know, like much of modern day evangelical, uh, evangelical Christendom, I would probably have quickly encouraged him to bow his head, raise his hand, walk the aisle, pray a prayer, sign a decision card, and then assure him that he had received eternal life. But notice Jesus' methods of evangelism. We have a lot to learn from his methods of evangelism. He knew that this young man was missing two essentials before he could bow his head, raise his hand, you know, sign a prayer card. He did not really believe that Jesus was the good master he had called him and we'll get into what that actually means the good master but he didn't really believe that Jesus was deity okay secondly and that's critical you have to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be the son of the living God I and my father are one all right secondly the Lord knew that this man did not recognize his own sinfulness so And we know that because he says, all these laws have I kept from my youth up. You know, I've always loved my neighbor as myself. He's missing something here. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, so the Lord went straight to the heart of these two essentials. In asking the young man, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. Jesus was trying to get this young fellow to see who he really is, who Jesus really is. He was not evading the man's question and nor was he denying his own deity. You see, when the rich young ruler called Jesus good master, he used the Greek word agathos for good. Now, in Greek, there's more than one word for good. Agathos is a word for good that speaks of intrinsic goodness. It's um, goodness through and through goodness personified and that's what this young man used instead of kalos goodness now kalos goodness is speaking of external goodness let me give you an example and this will help you if my grandchildren do something good I would say that they were kalos pedia good children But I would not say that they were agathos pedia. I would not say that because that would mean that they were intrinsically good. And I know better. (laughs) I know that they are really naughty little sinners who once in a while can behave properly. You see? So it was very unusual for this young religious ruler to call anyone intrinsically good he used the word agathos because that was a word that was reserved by the Jews only to speak of God so the Lord wanted to uh, wanted the young man to search his heart to see if he truly believed what he had just said did he really believe that Jesus was intrinsically good or was he just over overzealous in his attempt to be reverential to one who he did indeed respect? You know, he ran to him, fell down, and then he thought... He just got overzealous and said, Agathos Vidaskali, you know, good master. Did he genuinely believe that that Jesus was intrinsically good? Because if he did, then it meant that he did believe Jesus was God because only one is intrinsically good, and that is God. And God is perfect. If God was anything short of perfect, he would not be God. God is the fountain. He is the pattern. He is the ideal of all goodness. So all goodness is to be measured by him. And when a man is measured against God's goodness, guess what happens? (laughs) He always, always falls short. Very, very far short. So, and that's why it's so important in evangelism that we get someone to measure themselves against the holiness and the goodness of God and the law. So they see how far short they fall. So think about this. Jesus was saying to this man, God alone is good. No man is good, not in his essence. No man is good and uh, not in his very being. So if you really believe that I am agathos good, this means that you think I am God. Is that what you really believe, or do you just think that I am, you know, a mere man? Yes, a good teacher, uh, even one who speaks for God, such as the Old Testament prophets. In which case, if that is what you believe, then you should have used the word kalos, not agathos. But if you sincerely believe what you said, then you have rightly addressed me, Because I do indeed have the words of eternal life. And you notice what the Lord does in the rest of his conversation with this young man. He really proves that he is God because he does give him the words for eternal life. How this young man might receive eternal life. uh, How he could enter into life. So this means he was claiming to be God. Those who try to use the Lord's words here in verse 17 to say that uh, the Lord Jesus did not claim to be God, they miss the whole purpose of his words and what he's trying to do in the life of this young man. And also, it it really, it isn't a denial of of his deity at all, because look at exactly what he says. He doesn't say he's not God. He merely says that only God is good. He never says he isn't God, does he? All right. And he wouldn't contradict himself. And elsewhere, in the gospels, he clearly claims to be God equal with God. All right, now the second error of the young man that the rulers then set out, I mean that the Lord then set about to correct was his lack of seeing his own sinfulness. He may not have had the obnoxious arrogance of the Pharisee in the temple who we looked at last week, but unfortunately neither did he have the humble acknowledgement of his utter sinfulness as was displayed to us last week in the publican. You know, he didn't have the arrogance of the Pharisee but sadly he didn't have the, the he didn't see himself as not only a sinner but the sinner like the publican did he didn't realize this young ruler did not realize his desperate need for the mercy of god as that publican did he only thought in terms of what more he might himself do rather than asking for God in his mercy to do something for him. You see, it had it totally topsy turvy What can I do for you? God, instead of what you God can do for me in your mercy. Um, and this then is why the Lord mentioned the law in the latter half of verse 17, where he said, but if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, This would have been something that sounded very, very familiar to this man because all the Jews were taught their entire lives that the way into God's kingdom was through obedience to the law, the commandments. Leviticus 18.5, for one example, says this, So shall ye keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live. If he does them, I am the Lord. That's Leviticus 18.5. There's you can also look up Ezekiel twenty, eleven and other places. So we ask the question When Jesus said, if you're going to enter into eternal life, keep the law, keep the commandments, was he teaching salvation by works? Was the Old Testament teaching salvation by works? What does it say? So shall ye keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man may live if he does them? So was Jesus teaching salvation by works? Was the Old Testament teaching? Well, in a sense, we could say yes, uh, if that was possible. The problem is that it isn't possible. No mere man can be saved by his own works. That's why it says, um, if you'll keep my statute and my judgments by which a man may live, if he does them. Okay, but no man can keep the law in every, in every aspect of the law because to break the law in even one tiny little thought or attitude or motive, much less in one little action, is to break the whole law. Let's say we have a beautiful clay vessel and it's been, let me call it, fired, thank you. You know and it's ceramic looking and it's up here and it's just gorgeous and it's worth a whole lot of money they have some down in bob jones university i think of these chinese vessels that dr bob bought and brought into the auditorium and they're worth a fortune but if there's one little crack on that vessel or one even little pinprick in that vessel it loses its its value you can't you couldn't pour water in it because even one little hole tiny little hole eventually the water would would leak out. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and this is what it says in James 2:10: For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. Oh, me, oh, my. What if I lived to be a hundred and on my hundredth birthday I blew it? Oh, well, okay, my whole life. My whole life, a hundred years, I have always loved the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, my mind, and my strength. (laughs) Okay. And I had always loved all my neighbors, which is my fellow man everywhere. I'd always loved my neighbor as myself. For a hundred years, and and all the other laws, I kept every single one of them. Never had a bad thought. (laughs) Never had a bad attitude. Never bonked my little brother on the head. Never, you know, Nothing perfect. And then there I am on my 100th birthday and I don't like the way the nurse is taking care of me and I have a bad thought about her. Well, I just blew it. (laughs) I'm done for. That is how incredibly high are God's standards of, of righteousness to enter into his presence. God, you see, is perfect holiness. He is perfect goodness. And if he were to accept even one minutia of evil into his presence, there would be those before him who are imperfect. Okay, he lets me in. He says, okay, Catherine, you'd made it for a hundred years. That's just one little, I'll let you in. And then he does that for all of you guys too, you know. But all those little evils add up and pretty soon heaven is contaminated. The, The ground of heaven and the atmosphere surrounding holy God is contaminated. So heaven would no longer be perfect. It would be contaminated and therefore it would be imperfect. And heaven would no longer be heaven. It would no longer be a place of perfection. It would no longer be a place free of sin. And we would start this whole thing all over again. Like we have down here. Well, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the God-man, therefore he was not born with the Adamic sin nature, other than him, no one can be justified by the flesh. It says in Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Since this young ruler wanted to do some good thing in order to inherit eternal life, he would have to start and he would have to finish by perfectly keeping the commandments. So what he needed to understand is that the Lord did not mention the commandments. He didn't mention the law in order to show this young man how to be saved. Instead, he mentioned the commandments. He mentioned the law to attempt to get to uh, have the young man understand that he had broken the law. The law serves as our schoolmaster to reveal to us what we really are and what are we really. We're all lawbreakers, every single one of us. I can't even go a day. I was so upset with myself Sunday afternoon because here I've been studying about loving your neighbor as yourself, and I blew it. I wasn't very nice to my neighbors, my physical neighbors the other day. They're teenagers, and they were down on our property, and I blew it. Sorry. I mean, I was nice to them, but I didn't love them as I love myself. Of course, I don't make it through a day like that. None of us do. So the law is to teach us that we're all sinners. And true evangelism needs to follow the Lord's example. You know, I think back in my life and some of the people that I led to the Lord. Problem is, God didn't lead them to the Lord. I did, you know, told them to sign... A little prayer card, and okay, then assured them of their salvation, and I worry that they might be out there thinking they're saved, and they're not really saved. need to follow the Lord. You know, the Lord understands we all need to repent. That's so important. Remember our lesson on the need to repent? We have to make sure somebody really sees how far they fall short of the glory of God and how sinful they are. That's why the Sermon on the Mount, even though the Sermon on the Mount does not contain the gospel message, it surely is a good evangelistic tool because you cannot go through the Sermon on the Mount without seeing what a sinner we are. You know, to even have anger in your heart is the equivalent of of, of murder. And to even have lust and, you know, to exaggerate a truth is to... Um, and not keeping a vow and all kinds of things. We, you just can't go through the Sermon on the Mount without seeing what a sinner you are. And you need to see what a sinner, sinner you are so that you understand how desperately we need... The Savior. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us how hopeless and helpless we are and how much we need the Lord Jesus Christ. So, really, the Lord gave the man the only answer that could possibly bring him to realize the own, his own true spiritual state, the state of his soul. And he reminded him, therefore, of God's commandments. However, by the man's immediate response, which was just one word, look at verse 18, he saith unto him, which? The Lord said, keep the commandments. And all he said was, which? Which one? Which commandment? So by that response, we find out two further things about this young man. First of all, notice, he did not include an answer to the Lord's question about why he had called him Agathos Master. Now, if he really did believe that Jesus was God, that he was intrinsically good, this would have been the time for him to say something about that. But he just ignored the Lord's question about that. So that's one thing we see. And second thing we find out about this young man is that he is still entrenched in a work system of obtaining righteousness, even though that system had failed him so far. He had come running to Jesus with the hope that Jesus could give him some good thing to yet do, And now he was eagerly waiting to hear which good thing that was. Maybe there was some law he had missed, or maybe there was some wonderful accomplishment he could go and do, and then he would finally find the fulfillment in the spiritual dimension that he was looking for. He would know with assurance that he had received so he's wrong in thinking that there's yet something he can do. He's also wrong in thinking that there are some laws that are more important than other laws. He's kind of categorizing which one, which is the big one that I can do that will give me eternal life. Now, the Lord's response back to the man's single worded question, which, if you look at um, verse 18, was to quote five of the Ten Commandments. Five of the Ten Commandments that have to do with a man's duty toward his fellow man, his neighbor, so to speak. He was going to get to the heart of this young man's problem. And it's interesting as we follow along with the Lord's procedure, how how he did this. If the young man was going to really trust Jesus, you know, as God, intrinsic goodness, and as master... As he called him, and the one who could tell him how he might have eternal life, then he was going to have to see his failure to keep the laws having to do with loving his neighbor as himself. So Jesus referred to this, it's interesting, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, and the fifth commandments in that order. I don't know why, couldn't find any significance in that, but sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and the fifth one. And they all have to do with your neighbor. They're all on the second table of the law having to do with your fellow man. He uh, said, thou shalt not murder because that concerns your neighbor's life. Thou shalt not commit, commit adultery because that concerns your neighbor's wife, <laughs> your neighbor's life and your neighbor's wife um, or spouse. And then he said, Thou shalt not steal because that concerns your neighbor's property. Thou shalt not bear false witness concerns your neighbor's name and reputation. And honoring your parents concerns your duty to the closest neighbors that we have, which is our own family, you know, especially our parents. And then what Jesus did in verse, the latter half of verse 19, is he took all the table of the, the second table of the 10 commandments, which all have to do with your neighbor, your fellow man. And he summed them up by saying or giving the royal law. The royal law is what uh, James calls the commandment, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, tragically, the rich young ruler sincerely saw himself as completely righteous in regard to his obedience to these laws because immediately after hearing those five commandments and then the one about loving your neighbor as yourself he says all these things have I done or have I kept from my youth up what lack I yet that is I mean he was sincere he wasn't he really thought he had kept them all it's amazing but uh, I guess he had not heard the Sermon on the Mount (laughs) now another thing we discover in response to the Lord and for this, you have to go over to Mark, okay? So go back to Mark 10 and look at verse 20. Mark 10, I lost my place again. Verse 20. All right, another thing we notice is when the, Lord, when the man responded this time to the Lord, notice that he only referred to Jesus as master. It says, look at verse 20. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Notice that he dropped the intrinsically good adjective, agathos. He did not genuinely believe that Jesus was God incarnate, the Son of the living God. And that is further confirmed to us By his final response to Jesus' words of command in verse 21 of Matthew 19, when Jesus told him to, you know, go, sell, give, build up treasure in heaven, come, take up your cross, and follow me, did the man obey him? No, he did not. So he really did not believe that Jesus was God. And now we begin to sort of, you can go, well, maybe I'm not sure if you can go back to Matthew, but keep yourself in both places. We can sort of begin to sense this young man's growing frustration because he still had not heard Jesus say anything that he hadn't heard a thousand times before. He knew all these laws from the time he was a little tyke. You know, he'd been, and his mom and dad probably drilled the Ten Commandments into him. He heard about loving the Lord, thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, uh, and he had certainly been very, very careful his whole life to obey them. He had never murdered anyone. He had never taken anyone else's wife. Uh, or stolen anything, or given false witness, uh, lied, or defrauded someone in a court of law. And of course, he had honored his parents. I mean, it was only dis- a despicable Jew who would dishonor his parents. Now, well, of course, we know that this man's view of the law was completely external, wasn't it? It's was completely superficial. His understanding of the law is just completely man's interpretation of the law. And, of course, Christ, being omniscient, could easily, at this point in time, have told the young man something he had done in his life that blew it. He could have told him, I was there. I saw that time you had that inner rebellion against your mom. Yeah, you might not have said something to her verbally, but the rebellion was in your heart. Or I saw that time you took that little toy away from your baby sister. You know, he could have, any one of zillions of sins the young man had committed in his life. But he didn't do that. He didn't need to do that because he was going to hit the nail on the head with the one neighborly commandment that he did not mention. Do you notice which one he did not mention? What did I tell you he gave? The sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and fifth. But he didn't give... The tenth which is thou shalt not covet because that's the man's big problem he coveted his own wealth all right now interestingly in asking what he yet lacked i told you this before it's the same greek word that is used for come short for all have sinned and come short of the glory of god all have all lack coming you know up to the glory of god this is young ruler had still not seen himself as a sinner but he was aware of the fact that he did not have eternal life and that something was yet missing that he was still falling short that he was still lacking something he's so he's getting close you know he he knows he's coming short and that's again makes it so sad because he gets so close and yet he doesn't get there he doesn't receive eternal life you see he knew what he did not have he knew he did not have eternal life but he didn't know what he did have what did he have sin he did not know that he had sin but he's very sincere he is not a hypocrite and mark tells us something are you in mark okay you're you're still in mark maybe mark tells us something that matthew and luke did not and i think that's very interesting because mark got his information from peter and peter saw something going on here that he just couldn't forget and he told it to young john mark and john mark of course was inspired by the holy spirit to include this look at verse 21 of mark 10 it says, Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. I cried yesterday, and I'm crying again today. I, when I saw that when I was studying this week, I just started weeping. I said, oh, Jesus looked at him. The beholding is gazed into the young man's eyes, and he loved him. And I couldn't wait to go get my Greek dictionary and look up. I wonder if that was phileo love, brotherly love, or is that agape love? And you know what kind of love it is? It's agape love. It's unconditional God love. You see, Jesus so loved this young wealthy ruler that he was soon going to give his very life for him, shed his own sinless blood for him on a wooden cross, so that if this young man would believe on him, the intrinsically good master, he would not perish but would receive everlasting eternal life. And that makes it, to me, that just makes it so much sadder. You know, that here the Lord is trying to draw him with the love in his eyes. It just adds a whole extra dimension to the deep tragedy of this whole scene to know of Christ's love for this young man, as does the fact that God's love, Christ's love for all man. You know, he so, God so loved, it's agape love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And yet most men do what this young man did, and and they reject that love. You see, the Lord's love, as all-important as it is, because without the Lord's unconditional agape love, where would we be? we'd be totally lost. It's only because he loved the world that he sent his son. He loved us first. His love is all important. And yet, it is not by itself enough to save us. Not if we refuse that love and if we refuse to repent and surrender ourselves to him as Lord and Savior. So what this account really tells us is that there is a human responsibility side to salvation god loves us but it's not enough we there's a human responsibility side and we must accept that love and surrender to him believe on him so with love pouring out from his own heart to attempt to draw this young man to enter into life the lord gave him the big test the big test would he worship god or mammon. He told him if thou wilt be perfect complete it means if you if you think that you can keep the law if you so perfect and that you always love your neighbor as yourself as you say then go out and sell everything you have give it to the poor and then you shall have treasure in heaven. You know, not here on earth but in heaven. And then come, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me and you'll find eternal life. If he was going to truly live up to the command of the Mosaic law to love his neighbor as himself, he would now be willing to follow Jesus, to, to uh, do what Jesus commanded. If he did not covet and if he did not put any other gods before God, which is also the first commandment, isn't it? I shall not have any other gods before me if uh, if it was the top priority in his life to have to know he had eternal life and that God was all important to him, it would surely mean that that it was worthy of all and any sacrifices. And he, and he would be willing to do what the Lord commanded. Giving away everything he had to the poor would not have saved him. Okay? You understand that? Giving away everything he had would not have saved him. But it would have manifested a heart that was under the convicting work of the Holy Spirit of God, a heart that was truly ready for salvation. If he was willing to give up all that he had in order to really show that he loved his neighbor as himself and to uh, come with Christ, take up his cross and, and follow him, and remember Christ is on his way to a cross. And, you know, he could look at Jesus and see, well, he didn't have anything. He's got a nice linen robe, but that's it. And look at this ragtag of disciples following. You know, ooh, goodness. To give up my, uh, my nice home and all my creature comforts and my, and to follow him, mm, it's just, it's too much. But if he was willing, it would reveal a heart that genuinely did seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You know, if, like Abraham. Now, Abraham was another very, very wealthy man. If, like Abraham, this rich young ruler had simply responded with obedience to the Lord's advice here, and if he had even just turned, if he said, okay, and he had turned to go and put all his wealth and possessions into the hands of the poor, the Lord, I believe, may very well have stopped him and said okay well done follow me you know and maybe said I you know explained to him who he was and the man would have received eternal life I think he would have stopped him just as he stopped Abraham from thrusting that knife into into Isaac in obedience to God's great test of faith in his life you see God didn't want Isaac dead did he It was just a test of Isaac's obedience to God's word. Isaac was of much more use to God alive than dead. And God did not need this rich young man's wealth. It would actually, his wealth, would have been put to far better use through the hands of a saved, rich, young, prominent man than in the hands of a lot of unsaved poor people. You know, this man... Could have been the dispenser of much happiness because not only could he have shared his earthly treasures with those who were physically needy, but he could then have shared the greatest heavenly treasure with those who were spiritually needy, as he had been. And he could have shared with them the way to enter into life and have um, life eternal. He would have. He could have built up treasures in heaven where they really count. So it's, it's not wrong to be rich. And by the way, do you know, I don't care how little you have in this country, we are all rich compared to the rest of the world. And if you think back through history, all previous generations, you and I are rich. We are very rich. It's, it's not wrong to be rich, but it is a terrible thing if riches keep us from the kingdom of God. Wouldn't you admit that? That's a terrible, terrible, sad, tragic thing if riches keep a person from the kingdom of God. And they do. Go down to Pinehurst, walk around, see how many people care about the kingdom of God down there. Riches keep so many people from the kingdom. It's not a sin to have wealth, but it is a sin for wealth to have you. And the great possessions of this man possessed him. He would not obey Jesus. Not that he could not obey Jesus. He would not obey Jesus. He could have. It would have been so much easier for him to obey that commandment to give away his wealth, it wouldn't have taken but a day, probably. He could have just put a little ad in the paper, everything I have is free, and it would have been gone in a day. <laughs> that would have been easy to obey compared to honoring your mother and your father all your life and always loving your neighbors, yourself and loving your Lord God with all your heart and everything. That would have been easy for him. He could have obeyed the Lord, but he would not obey the Lord. So uh, the fact was that Mammon mammon materialism was really his his god and no man can serve what two masters no man can serve two masters the lord had not mentioned the tenth commandment thou shalt not covet previously because he knew that this was this man's big stumbling block to surrender and it was the one final punch that the lord jesus was going to use to try to get him to see himself as a lawbreaker you're not willing to give away everything, then don't you see you really don't love your neighbor as yourself? You know, he knew before that he didn't, but he wanted the young man to see that he really didn't love his neighbor as himself. And uh, he wanted the the young man to see that, so then he would say, you're right, I am a sinner, I see it now, I need your mercy, you know, and call out like the publican, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. But the sad result, the tragic, tragic, sad result is that this rich young ruler who had come running in the right spirit with the right question at the right time in his life to the right source, Jesus, he went away very sorrowfully. And the Greek word lipomenos, for sorrowful literally suggests the picture of coming storm clouds you see this this young man had come running eagerly toward the sun shine the s-o-n shine yet he walked away into a storm what a picture what a sad sad picture he now saw his eyes were open He saw that he had indeed failed to keep the law about loving his neighbor as himself. But he coveted his riches more in this life than he wanted eternal life in heaven. That's why it says in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money... Is the root of all evil, which some, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows, with many storm clouds. Sad, sad, sad. Probably one of the saddest encounters in the life of Christ because this young man was at Jesus' feet, and everyone who was ever at Jesus' feet went away in better shape than when they got there. But he did not, because he would not. Tragic. All right, let's pray. Father God, may your spirit now take all that we have heard from your word and impress upon our hearts the vital critical need to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and to put no other gods before you, which includes not only such idols as as wealth and possessions, but it can include even our love of um, acceptance, to be popular with our friends, to be be loved, even our drive for uh, success in our Christian service. And our home can be an idol. Our appearance can be an idol. Our husbands, our children, our grandchildren—anything we place before You, Father, can be an idol. So, I just pray that we would each be able to attain, by Your grace and Your mercy and Your strength, attain to the faith of the Father Abraham, so that we would truly put You above even the most precious of all treasures. And that, after all, is exactly what You did when You sacrificed your son on our behalf father i pray that with each and every step of christ's life that we study that we would find ourselves being more and more conformed into his image and his likeness and father i thank you that salvation is by grace through faith that it is not by works of the flesh because otherwise none of us none of us would ever ever be saved Thank you for your gift of life. Thank you for life more abundant. Thank you for eternal life, which is made possible through the one who is indeed intrinsically good, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.